0: Hello, my name is Noel McMillan, and welcome to Politics Then and Now, the show that takes history and political philosophy and applies it to the present day. Today we're going to talk about the start of history's two greatest republics, Rome and the United States, and examine the similarities of the two, as well as the influence of Rome's on Americas. We'll also discuss the universal truths around class struggle, norms and traditions, and the unintended consequences of established institutions that we can extract about republics from both Rome and America, and we'll examine what threatens America's republic today. So, let's climb the ladder of truth together. Who is there so feeble-minded or idle that he would not wish to know how and with what constitution, almost all the inhabited world was conquered and brought fully under the single dominion of Rome in 53 years. Polybius Before we get going on what the early days of the Roman Republic can teach us that applies to today, we need to understand the very basics of the greatest story history ever told. The city of Rome was founded in 753 BC. According to legend, it began when its mythical founder, Romulus, killed his brother, Remus, Built walls around the city and proclaimed that the same fate would befall any who dared cross the wall as did Remus. And so Romulus became the first king of Rome, and the little discussed era of the Roman kingdom began. It's important to know that the Roman kingdom is different from the Roman Empire, which won't come about for more than seven hundred years. The kingdom was when Rome was just barely larger than the size of the current city, and ruled by Etruscan kings, and the empire was the superpower of the world covering all of Europe, North Africa, and into West Asia. Going way back in time so we can later move forward to understand the founding of America and their governing norms, we'll start with the Roman Kingdom. The Roman Kingdom spanned what is known as the Seven Kings of Rome. Only three are worthy of note for our purposes. The first, Romulus, embodied the unrelenting, warlike ferocity of the Roman people. And the second, Numa, embodied the rigidly faithful, superstitious discipline of them. And the seventh and final king of Rome was Tarquinius Superbus, and he sucked. In fact, he sucked so much that Rome revolted and decided they didn't want to have any one man have that much power ever again. They wanted to have what they called res publica, or in English, the public thing, or, as has become known today, a republic. Sound familiar? It was also what the founding fathers wanted. The most important goal of the Roman Republic was to keep one person from ever getting too powerful, again, which was similar to what America's goal was, and Rome took that goal very seriously. Seriously to the point that you were legally allowed to kill anyone you suspected of trying to become a king. The government Rome came up with to ensure this goal was without doubt a brilliant one. In fact, its brilliance, both in ideology and application, became the intellectual starting point for the founding of our modern republics. It's what's called a mixed government, meaning it takes institutions from multiple regime types and molds them into one to balance each other out. In Rome's case, there are three parts to that mix. First, the monarchy, which means rule of one. Second, the aristocracy, which means rule of the elites. Third, the democracy, which means rule of the people. First, the monarchical and most powerful part were the consuls. There were two of them, and they were the elected chief executives, and served for one year at a time. Both consuls had a veto, which in Latin means, I forbid. So neither could gain too much power because the other would check his peer consul. They also had term limits and only served for one year at a time. Next was the aristocratic part of the mix, the Senate. This consisted of about 300 Roman wealthy aristocrats who had come up through the ranks of Roman politics as magistrates. They served mostly in an advisory role, but because their appointment to the Senate was for life, and because of their immense wealth, their advice was almost always taken by the consuls. The final part of the mix, the real kicker in terms of limiting one person from getting too powerful, was the democratic aspect, the committees. The committees were made up of the people and they voted on laws and elected officials. However, their voting system was kind of weird. They had their own electoral college. They were divided up into groups based on their social status and jobs, and each group voted as a block, and the voting ended as soon as a majority was reached. Not surprisingly, the distribution of this group favored the wealthy, so they got their way a lot. It wasn't perfect, but you see the seeds of what, ultimately, the goal was. And you should see how America incorporated this system of mixed government into our own state. You have the monarchical president, the aristocratic congress, and the democratic elections and referenda. So how did the actual governing work back then? One of the most important things to know about the Roman Republic is that there was no written constitution. Instead, the government's rules were dictated by what was called the mos maiorum, or in English, the tradition of the ancestors. The mos maiorum were the norms, traditions, and republican values that were set back in the early days of the republic. They were also the most important factor in the Republic's success. As we'll see as we delve into it more, one of the most valuable lessons that Rome teaches us about modern republics like America is that norms, traditions, and republican values matter even more than laws. As we see today, the balance of power the Republic was trying to achieve counts on the nature and ambitions of the people to sustain norms more than the institutional enforcement of the laws that ensure the pure functioning of the Republic. And herein lies the fragility of a republic, that is dependent on the character of its leaders and values of its society. So each generation poses an existential threat, as they too must come to adopt these values. The best example of the effectiveness of the most by arm came in the success of the office of dictator, as we discussed last episode. In times of crisis, the government needs to act swiftly and with one voice. That voice was literally that of the dictator which in Latin means, he says. The dictator was appointed by the Senate to be in charge for chunks of six months at a time, or until the emergency was deemed over. This may seem like a position ripe for abuse, but it wasn't. And it wasn't because the sanctity of the Mosmaiorum was so strong that no one would dare try to do something in such extreme violation of them. That's where the values, norms, and traditions of the Roman Republic really come into play. So how does this relate to the early American republic and today's republics as a whole? It might seem random, but let's start with the veto. America and other countries took the veto for Rome. Why? Because it's a critical instrument to prevent one person from gaining too much power. Even today, it prevents the government from moving too quickly and provides checks on decision makers. In republics, you see, slowness and deliberation are good things. They allow for reasoned decision making and for every point of view to be heard and considered. Our founders agreed with this principle and gave the president the authority to veto laws passed by Congress. A lesson America learned from Rome was that the power of an absolute veto can actually lead to a massive problem. That's because the the tool designed to keep someone from gaining too much power can actually lead to someone gaining too much power by essentially holding the government hostage with his veto. We're going to do a whole episode on one such event in Roman history, America, however, successfully has avoided the issue in terms of the power of the executive because a two-thirds majority of Congress overrides a presidential veto. But the United States has not escaped the stalemates that could be caused by vetoes entirely. The idea of the founders was originally that the Senate and the House would be sort of on the same team. They'd be checking the power of the executive and judicial branch. But in our time of partisan politics, this simply isn't the case. We see right now that the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who are elected by just over 5 million of the 330 Americans combined, are capable of bringing the government to a stop. McConnell decides what gets voted on in the Senate. Pelosi decides in the House. So if a bill isn't going to go the way they want it to, essentially, they can just keep it from even being voted on. As we speak in December of 2020, this use of disproportionate power is occurring with the COVID stimulus package. It has passed the House, but Majority Leader McConnell won't let it be voted on until its demands are met. However, the power of Pelosi and McConnell is not enshrined in the Constitution, but a result of a change in norms and customs over time. Their power certainly is not illegal, but it also wasn't intended. This is just one of the many examples of which partisanship, which did not exist in Rome, has eroded our own most maior. Beyond just the value of norms, traditions, and republican values in a republic... Rome also teaches us about class struggles within one. It's important to know that the Roman Republic was very much a class-based system. There were two, not counting slaves, the Patricians and the Plebeians. Patricians were the nobility and could trace their lineage all the way back to the first 100 senators that advised Romulus, the first king, and only they could be senators. The Plebeians were everybody else. It's interesting to note that, though most patricians were wealthy and most plebeians less so, this division was not based on wealth. There were certainly plenty of rich plebeians, but the struggle between the patricians and the plebeians would define republican Rome for generations. For the first generation of republican Romans, so the late 5th century BC, things weren't easy. There was no honeymoon phase after defeating Tarquin, remember him? He's the guy who was such a bad king that Rome literally invented a new form of government. There was almost immediate trouble from abroad and at home. You see, the surrounding cities in Italy saw the Roman Revolution as leaving Rome weak, so they decided to pounce. So, in 496 BC, Aulus Postumius was named dictator to protect the city. It was the first test of the Mos Maiorum and the Republic, and it held. Postumius fought off the invasion of surrounding cities and then immediately relinquished power. An example followed by George Washington, who many believe could have made himself king. Both of these examples established the most arm of a peaceful transition of power in the respective countries, which is fundamental to the health of a republic. And it is very concerning what we're seeing in the United States today, as Joe Biden is set to become the next president and a smooth transfer of power is not occurring. In Rome, though, as was the case in the early United States, the plebeians weren't happy with the early Republic, as they hoped it would bring them more change in their lives than it actually did. At this point, no plebeian was even allowed to hold elected office, and they were angry that they had now fought in both the revolution against Tarquin and to protect the city from invaders, yet still had to pay massive debts and taxes that they incurred while fighting. So what did they do? They went on strike. They literally all just left Rome and refused to return until they were given the power they believed they deserved. So the Senate, with the strength of newly formed republic on the line, decided to create a new position. It was called the Tribune, and there were two of them, and they were plebeians, and they were elected only by plebeians. And each had their own veto, just like the consuls. This was Rome's only real institutional check and balance, and it led to a lot of future showdowns and stalemates, similar to what I mentioned about Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, between the patricians and the plebeians. Class struggle is an inevitable part of a republic. In the United States, both at its founding and now, are no different. In fact, just like in Rome, almost immediately after the founding of the American Republic, many farmers felt they were being taken advantage of and not being properly taken care of by this new government they had fought for and been so sure would help better represent them. The frustration came to a head during the Whiskey Rebellion. In 1784, in western Pennsylvania, farmers and distillers protested a whiskey tax enacted by the federal government. Following years of aggression with tax collectors, the region finally exploded in a confrontation that resulted in President Washington sending in troops to quell what some feared would become a full-blown revolution. So what's one conclusion we can draw from the immediate frustration of the lower classes at the beginning of both republics? The class struggle in a republic is even greater than in a monarchy because in a republic, the lower class has the expectation of being served in some way by the republic. They feel they are not subjects, like in a monarchy, acting at the will of a king, but part of the community and owe justice and fairness. To state the obvious, today's America is divided on many fronts, but one of the biggest is geography, and it's no longer the north versus the south. It's urban versus rural. I believe that we have our own informal version of the patrician and plebeian divide between the values of the so-called coastal elites and everyday Americans. And the data bear this out. Urban versus rural America has never been more divided. Joe Biden dominated major cities, carrying him to victory in key battleground states. For example, Biden won Milwaukee by 40 points. And that's the entire reason he won Wisconsin. Conversely, Trump won rural counties by 40 points. What's interesting about this divide is that there are strong populist movements amongst each side. On the far right, it's more of a nationalistic identity populism. On the left, the populist push is about income inequality and socialism. As I mentioned, class disparity came up again and again during peacetime in the Roman Republic. And we'll cover multiple examples of that going forward, but it's the same in America. During times of war... Talk about wealth distribution and national identity goes down. But during times of peace, it becomes a greater focus. During war, there's too much immediate focus on unity around a common goal, to focus on big picture injustice. That luxury only exists in peace. At the beginning of Republican Rome, the wealth and cultural gaps were far greater than they are in America today. But the poor and the plebeians made a lot of progress over time, albeit non-linear progress. Eventually, making the class distinction pretty much meaningless. It remains to be seen what the large surge of economic and cultural populism will bring in America, but you'll come to learn in future episodes about more such surges in Rome and will help inform your understanding of today. Because, as you've seen, there are quite a few similarities that just transcend time about the nature of a republic. I've mentioned a couple of times that there are inherent threats to a republic, and next week, I want to focus on one in particular to the United States, the Electoral College. The Electoral College is set to meet December 14th to officially make Joe Biden the president-elect. There is much debate about the fairness of the Electoral College, a lot of which is misinformed, but what really flies under the radar is how the intricacies of it are a great threat to the republic. We'll cover it next week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate it five stars, and leave a review. I'd love to hear from you, so email me at politicsthenandnow@gmail.com at gmail.com with any questions or suggestions. Follow me on Instagram at politics then and now and on Twitter at politics then now. I'd like to thank Stephanie Tennaerowitz and Sarah McMillan for helping me put this together. And as always, my dog Socrates for all his support. Thank you for deciding to be a more informed citizen today.